Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a podcast where we deep dive into the writing of your favorite novels. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. In season one, we explored Sarah J. Mass's A Court of Thorns and Roses. In our post-season content, we look forward to sharing listener feedback and thoughts we received over the last eight weeks, as well as interview content from some special guests. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are entirely their own and in no way represent the thoughts or intentions of the original author. This podcast is a discussion shared to spark thought and conversation on the characters and themes of this novel. Though the hosts speak mostly within the constraints of this book, series spoilers may be discussed with or without warning. Explicit language, as well as themes of sex, violence, abuse, and oppression will recur throughout the podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, Jack and I are here today to discuss some listener emails that we received that we thought you might enjoy as much as we did. Our first email is from Sharn. Hi guys, what a great podcast you have. Just as I've discovered Akatar and I'm missing Prithian, it's made me so happy to hear your analysis. I love the literary deep dive and critical analysis. Oh, thank you. So I'm Welsh slash British, currently living in England, and you're probably already heard some of this. I noted some Welsh-British links in Akatar series. Firstly, the map is very much like the British Isles. I've seen this mentioned on TikTok, so I'm sure it's no surprise. Secondly, Reese is a Welsh name, meaning passion, enthusiasm. I think we can agree that suits him. He is very passionate. Oh, man. He knows how to eat his soup. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> We're not even there yet. <laughs> Thirdly, Elaine, I always read and pronounced in my head as Ellen. Elon? Ellen? Which is another Welsh name. And an old colleague of mine, meaning the bright or shining one. Ooh. Interesting. Then finally, we move into a court of silver flames. Gwen is another Welsh name, meaning white holy. Accurate. Totally. This cannot be a coincidence. We agree with you. I would love to look into other possible links. I just finished Throne of Glass, and so I may head back to a Court of Thorns and Roses to review it. Kind regards and desperation for the next Tuesday to come around quickly. Sharn. Aw, thank Thanks, you, Sharn. Sharn. I love their emails. It was so exciting reading this for the first time with you. Yes. Uh, any any email we got, we were so excited to read, review. People actually listened and wanted to <laughs> respond to us. Especially when someone's able to provide insight to things that I definitely do not know anything about Welsh names. So I really liked this a lot. I had a different type of insight and I didn't know about the Resan Welsh name. I will say, though... Uh, TikTok has definitely mentioned how the map of Prithian looks like the British Isles. Uh, it totally does, which means all of TikTok agrees that Resan needs to have a Scottish accent in the live action. Oh, that's where it went? That's, I mean, yes. He's in the north. Oh, that's fair. That is fair. Like, I mean, don't you want him to be like Sassanak? <laughs> I can't do a Scottish accent, but in my head, it was really sexy. <laughs> terrible <laughs> no <it was> sexy <laughs> i totally thought resand was a made-up name so i'm glad it actually has roots in something real passion he is passionate it's interesting for someone who wears so many masks as um favorite observes in akamoth that he would be considered passionate why passion for reese you know, I think that really comes down to like the word itself, passionate. I think there's a lot of 
ways that people interpret it, right? We think passionate and we think someone who is like maybe overly emotional about one thing, right? But in many ways, I think passionate embodies just someone feeling something full, feeling full force. And that doesn't necessarily mean how they're showing that, but just more how they're approaching it in life. And I would say no matter what mask he's wearing, Reese goes full force all the time, unlike the half-assed Tamlin. You know what, though? I actually, I agree and disagree. I think in this way, Tamlin and Reese are the same. They feel passionately about certain things. And where they differ is the fact that Reese has a better control of his emotions where Tamlin does not. 100%. I am so excited for when we go into season two of Court of Mist and Fury. Uh, you and I have not reviewed our notes together, but I can already guess that this is going to be a theme both of us are picking up on. And there are a lot of similarities between the two. There are. It's actually, I forget how many similarities there are. And I honestly think that they could be friends one day. Because they were. <laughs> Are you laughing at me? Never. Yes. Um. I mean, yeah, no. In theory, yes, they could be. I had a white claw. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> Don't yeah. admit that. Because they'll think that we're like classless or something. Like we should have fancier alcohol. No, just. We we don't drink on the job. <laughs> so I wonder what Tamlin's name means. If there's oh. any meaning to that. Didn't we? Did, someone told us this in the comments, I think, on TikTok. And I do not remember off the top of my head. Um, I'm just going to look up to see if I can find the Tam- Tamlin? Tamlin thing. In I'll the Google. Comments. What does Tamlin mean? Oh, damn. Tam and then Lynn, like these are two names, is a character in the legendary ballad originating from the Scottish borders. It's also associated with a reel of the same name, also known as the Glasgow Reel. The story revolves around the rescue of Tamlin by his true love from the Queen of the Fairies. (laughs) Oh, I see what's happening here. Oh, that's right. (laughs) That's right. That is what the commenter told us. Oh, my God. The motif of capturing a person by holding him through all forms of transform transformation is found throughout Europe in folktales. All right. So basically, Sarah J. Mass is just rubbing it in our face. Yeah. Like, oh, his name was a clue. Oh, we didn't know that. This is the equivalent of Darth Vader. And mm. people are like, what's his father? It's like, doesn't that mean father in German? German or something. Yeah. Probably. I will say her call out to Gwen, me white and holy, to me means that she's meant to be with Azriel. So. Excuse you. That is evidence. Uh, Gwen two, Elaine zero. Although what's Elaine's thing here? What does hers mean? Bright and shining. Also appropriate for Azrael. Do you think that has anything to do with, like, the Starborn? Maybe. I mean, okay, so this is Hosab and Crescent City related. Spoilers if you haven't read the other ones. I do think that they're descendants of the Starborn. So it would make sense. I think there's still a lot to Elaine we haven't uncovered yet. I worry that this means that she's more important. I'm so excited. All right. Our next email is from Emily. Hello. Thank you so much for your podcast. I have devoured the episode so far and can't wait for the next episode. As an English lit major, former English teacher, and a lover of deep analysis, this podcast has brought me so much joy at really digging into a good book. You're in good company, Emily. 
I did want to reach out to talk about the passage on page 200 when Tamlin gives Feyre the white roses. I agree that this paragraph is such tight writing. There is so much to unpack in this short passage. So this, I'm going to pause, is in response to our comment about the white roses, my comment, I should say, of the white roses being a sympathy. Let's recap a little bit more. This is when Farrah and Tamlin are in an argument, right? And he comes back to apologize and he gives her white roses and she instantly forgives him. Right. And I was like, why? That means sympathy. So Emily clarifies, number one, white roses are symbolic of innocence, youthfulness, and loyalty. These are exactly the things Tamlin sees in Feyre. She's young. She's innocent as a human. And as she embraces the femininity he needs and wants from her, and he needs her loyalty. The roses are a picture of what he demands from her. Number two, they are from his parents' garden. This brings up the mating bond and the mismatch of Tamlin's parents. This is a a quote. My mother, she loved my father deeply, too deeply, but they were mated. And even if she saw what a tyrant he was, she wouldn't say an ill word against him. That is page 176 in A Court of Lords and Roses. This is exactly what Feyre is doing. Despite warning Nesta off of Thomas because he won't stand up for his mother, Feyre cannot see who Tamlin is and will not say an ill word against him. In parentheses or later, allow Reese to say anything ill of him. Despite all the flags that he really is a tyrant. Point number three. I dismissed them as nothing. Even though it is so clear what Tamlin is and what he wants from her, Vera has all the evidence before her and dismisses it and lets him take away her power. Point number four. She puts them in her painting room, her painting room where she feels safe and unjudged. This is her own inner sanctum where she can really be herself. Putting the flowers in her locked painting room shows that she has let Tamlin in fully. Just chef's kiss, beautiful writing in just five sentences gorgeous. Thank you again for making this podcast. It is truly a delight. Thank you, Emily. That was, I loved, loved reading this email the first time and every time, honestly, because she just brought so much more to light on a section that you and I had already analyzed pretty deeply. And that's just the beauty of a, you know, critical reading is that everyone brings something new to the table. But I want to go through this uh, point by point. The first one being that the white roses are symbolic of youthfulness and innocence and loyalty. Everything that Tamlin uh, sees in Farah. She's young, she's innocent as a human and embraces her femininity. And it's just the right amount of predatory (laughs) that I think Tamlin is. You know, that's interesting because when I was rereading Emily's email, I was kind of rereading it from Feyre's perspective. And I don't think Feyre would see herself as innocent or youthful because even though she is young, she's 19. She is a rough 19. She's a very rough 19. And when you think innocence, you think virginity. And that's not Feyre either. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's she's very jaded in a lot of ways. And so it's almost like Tamlin either sees her for more than what she is or is completely disconnected from her reality. 
And I don't I don't know that that's a bad thing. He just sees her differently than she sees herself. I mean, sometimes, you know, people see something within ourselves that we, you know, we're surprised like, oh, that's what you see in me. That's amazing. And I agree that doesn't necessarily mean wrong or right of Tamlin. But what I feel like for Farah, I think that she's clearly seeing what he wants her to be. And she's stepping into that role. We talked about that when she started wearing the dresses, when she started painting more. And this is a role, the youthful innocent, that she is willing to step into. So, you know, whether whether he sees that in her or it's a narrative that he's forced, not forced upon her, but he's like decided and she's, you know, saying, okay, it definitely feels like a by him giving them to her and her receiving them, it almost feels like an agreement now that we're looking through this. Like, this is how I view you. And she's like, yep. And this is how I'm accepting it. Interesting. I I, I actually like that. Thank you. <laughs> Why do you sound surprised? I don't know. I just <laughs> I, I guess I didn't know where you were going. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can, I'm on board. I take a long trip, but wherever I get is fun. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to point number two. I do agree that Feyre is not capable of saying an ill word against Tamlin. And we do see this more and more as the story progresses in A Court of Thorns and Roses. Feyre, once she returns to Prithian and goes under the mountain, as we've discussed in the podcast, she has to accept that she's risked it all for this guy that she's not quite sure if she loves him. and. And with that, with that risk, you a she has to force herself into this idea of loving him, but also has to force herself into this box of not saying an ill word against him. Mm-hmm. And we see that early on in Akamoff as well, that she she died for this man. So therefore, there can't be anything wrong with him. Right. Because otherwise, what was the sacrifice for? Which is crazy, because I think in many ways, she's his biggest critic. She she does become that, but... Well, no, even in her mind, like when he begs for... Re- like when he begs in front of Resand or when he doesn't fight back, like she bookmarks, bookmarks those moments every single time in her head and is just like, stand up, fight. Right, right. And she does judge him for not fighting back. She does, however, I think what's important for Feyre as she goes through her journey of, you know, coming to terms with her relationship with Tamlin and the course that it takes... She does accept the good that he did for her. And I think that that's important and why she's not capable of saying an ill word against him. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, there's the savior complex in a way. Yeah. But even then, like, you can still be grateful for the good that someone did for you, even if they also did bad. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the good is separate from the bad in those instances. He gave her health and protection in a time when she really needed it we can't ignore what happens later but we also can't ignore the good that she she even tells herself in akamoff that she was once a cold unfeeling being and who tamlin was and what he gave her at that time in her life is what she needed i'm looking back at the at the point and i like the comments of how it's from tamlin's parents rose garden his mother's rose garden and you know, it just kind of symbolizes just how mismatched his parents are, just how mismatched Fair, him and Fair are. But I also think it's him 
trying to push that uh, mating bond agenda. Like I know like at this current point in time, he's not pushing the mating bond agenda, but eventually he does. And I think this is all kind of build up where he's creating a narrative in his head of like, my parents were all sorts of mismatched, but they're mates. I'm a, I'm a fae and she's human. You know, we could work. So it's just a, it's, you know, we talk a little bit before about how early in the book, Tamlin feeds Farah and talks about it being such a great honor, right, for a fae to serve a human, which is a notion that we never hear before. But we also talk about how it really reflects the mating bond. I'm seeing that this might be another time that he's kind of dancing around this concept of a mating bond with her, even super early on without him realizing it. I do agree that he pushes the mating bond early on, and this is an example of that. But I'm going to be contrary because early on in Akamoff, Feyre also pushes the mating bond agenda. Oh, 100%. She gets like all on board of that mating bond agenda towards the end or towards Akamoff. Yeah. But definitely in Akatar, it's Tamlin pushing it. In a subconscious level. Right. Definitely subconscious. And then finally, she puts them in the painting room. Her painting room, which is where she's safe and locked. And that's a place that she's locked up. That's a place where she's able to get all of her emotional demons out, essentially. And she's let him in entirely. It really does symbolize how much he's crept into her mind, body, soul. This was honestly one of my favorite points from Emily that I didn't even think about. Like, we all have that inner place that we keep locked up. And this was Feyre's just in, it was corporeal. Mm -hmm. And her allowing those flowers to come in to that space was really beautiful imagery. Yes. That I did not catch the first time. And it, uh, you know, once someone points it out, it's like, oh, that was a definite purposeful move. Oh, absolutely. Good job, Emily. Good job, Emily. All right. And for our final email for today, it's from Heather. And she says, hi, love the podcast. Just saw the video about the roses because at this point, Amy and I had posted a video on TikTok talking about Emily's email, actually. I wanted to add a thought. When you brought up the flowers, I thought it was relevant that Sarah J. Mass is Jewish. And there's tons of Jewish references throughout the series. In Judaism, we do not give or display flowers at a funeral or grave. Traditionally, it's because the flowers die and wither. We leave stones on graves as they are permanent. I see this as Tamlin and Farah's relationship will wither and die. Reese gives Farah jewels later in that series, which shows the permanence of their love. So I thought a lot about this as I was reading Akamoff. So this yep. is a spoiler alert for Akamoff. First of all, amazing point. I love that we're bringing in Sarah's you know, who she is and her references into this story, because as writers, we bring what we know, right? And this is definitely, I think, intentional. As I was reading Akamoff, Tamlin does give Feyre jewelry, but Feyre gives that jewelry away. And she tells Tamlin that she never wears the same jewelry twice, and it means nothing to her. Mm-hmm. Contrast to two pieces of jewelry that Pharaoh receives, the amulet from Amrin and the ring from Resand in Akamoth. And these are two very intentional pieces of jewelry that have meaning for Pharaoh. 
The amulet keeps her safe or she thinks keeps her safe when she goes into the prison. And the ring is Resan's mother's ring that is passed from female to female and is their marriage ring. And it's so interesting that though Tamlin did try to give her jewelry, Pharaoh rejects it because he had no intention behind that jewelry. Because he just kept giving her and giving her and giving her, whereas Resand only gives her one piece of jewelry that he wants her to have. Getting some sneak peek for season two there. Yeah, so excited. For the context of the email when we were talking about Akatar, Heather really does bring a great point to where Sarah J. Mass is coming from with flowers versus stones, because to your point, we later see that more so in Akamoth. But just this... Uh, this call out of flowers and the fact that flowers could potentially represent a a grave of many ways. Like, you know, one of the, I think Tamlin and Farrah has, has one of the saddest love stories in general because they kind of, they end before they really get to start. And it's, you know, some of it's their own fault. Some of their circumstances, circumstances, sure. But it's a, you know, it's kind of like an early grave for them by having those flowers exchange. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think also, I think it's significant that he's spring court and the mm-hmm. association of spring with flowers, right? That they they do wither and die. And though they come back, it's never the same flower that comes back. Whereas with Resand, he is night and you're going to get night mm-hmm. every 24 hours. It's coming back. I wonder if this means Elaine will die. Shh. Which is my other theory. Don't say that. <laughs> thank you for listening to this special episode of book talk for book talk we encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform as we gear up for season two where we will deep dive into a court of mist and fury we will continue to share between season thoughts and interviews with our listeners we would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com for a chance to have your feedback discussed during a weekly mini episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please visit our website, booktalkforbooktalk.com, to view our latest merch and learn about supporting the show through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Venmo. Or find us on TikTok and Instagram at the handle booktalkforbooktalk.com.